We're reading from 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 16. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and that is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I can't help but just make a quick comment about this headset. It's, um, they're always very different wherever you go, but this one's got this um, piece here that pushes my ear out. And I don't know if Gary... I don't know, well, I don't know if Gary Miller's here, but I think it makes me look like him. Is that right? got to love Gary. I think he had a meeting on tonight. Um... Well, look, last night my aim was to lay some foundations, uh, and the foundations were fairly simple. There was that there's more to this world than the material stuff. There's more to our life than matter. Um, But more than that, I wanted to demonstrate that the account of human history is the history of being caught up in a massive spiritual conflict. So it's not sufficient just to say that there's more to us than matter. It's actually important to recognise that from the very beginning we've been caught up in a global, heavenly, spiritual war and we've been bound up together in that uh, through the work of Satan. There are spiritual forces against God seeking to draw humanity away from God. Now, you can't properly make sense of existence or humanity without understanding those things. Um, And I want to add too, you can't actually understand lots of Bible language without understanding those things. The language of kingdom uh, trades very heavily on this battle between the kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the sun. There is more, is the first big point. But there is a danger as you begin to grasp this larger frame, this larger canvas of the way we see ourselves in existence. There's a danger that you begin to see it and think into spiritual reality and begin to engage with it and begin to engage with it as a pagan with a diminishing of God's sovereignty. As you try and make sense of a war, well, that must mean two forces battling and you start to actually move into a pagan conception and lose touch with the Bible. 
and also lose touch with the Bible as you fail to grasp that humans, though impacted by satanic forces and demonic and so on, and, and uh, even um, stirred by demons, possessed by remain responsible. There's the foundation. Tonight, I want to dig further, and uh, i got a lot I want us to go through. Um, and the big thing is, how do we experience that battle, and how do we engage in it? How do we experience, how do we engage? Now, they're related. How do we we stop being a naturalistic church? How do we stop being churches that are merely operating in the natural and become churches that are operating in the supernatural? How do we become churches like that? That is a key question. How do we step into the spiritual as churches? Now, so often our ministries are no more than this worldly. And I think we need to face this problem. We have reduced our ministries down to mere words. We've become debating clubs. Public speaking skills are important to us. Administration and organisation and all of that kind of thing has become... with, With our chief aim to get people to agree to a set of propositions and ideas and to change their behaviour. We have reduced church often down to these things and that is so inadequate. How do we get our ministries truly engaging in the supernatural? in the spiritual. Now, some people are sure they've got the answers. Uh, Here's some quotes I just pulled off quickly off the internet. It's not hard to find this kind of stuff. Listen to this one. You have a choice, quote, you have a choice to live in the natural or the supernatural. If you live in the supernatural, it's normal for you to see the power of God on display. So instead of saying, wow, we saw a miracle, you'll begin to see it as normal as you operate in the supernatural. Is that the way to operate in the supernatural? Another one believes that the realm of the spirit, the supernatural realm, angels, heavenly visitations, etc., are meant to be a normal part of your life. Most people are robbed because of their religious mindsets. This person uh, says, ministers, uh, they minister to deliver us from those mindsets so that we can receive all that God has for us to get into the supernatural Now, what these two quotes express is a very strong awareness of the supernatural. You find that in many contexts, this awareness of a higher battle. Um, But they're concerned, too, that we operate in the supernatural, that we engage at that level. They're very concerned for us to be uh, part of that world. And they insist that if you do operate in the supernatural, you will see angels, demons, you'll see visitations, you'll have miracles as normal, and the power of God will be on display. There's a shape, I'll give it to you, I'm going to show you a picture in a second. There's a shape to the existence of us that they're offering in these kind of quotes and thinking. And I've tried to show it with a diagram. Um, The way they have effectively demonstrated the nature of existence is that there's below the line, there's the natural world, the world of matter, physical stuff that we move in. Above the line is the supernatural. And we, as people and as churches, operate in the natural Uh, And we need to learn how to move up into the supernatural and operate in that realm. Um, Now, they are seeking to encourage us to be aware of this supernatural dimension and be engaged in it. But here's the thing. That conception of reality, as they're seeking to actually move us out of that natural where we're just just about mere words and we're just about debating and we're just running organisations and we're simply getting people to change their views and change their behaviour. They're trying to get us out of that natural way of thinking of church and get into the supernatural. But the conception of existence they've given us 
is itself a massive problem. It's a massive problem. And I want to dig into this issue. How do we engage in the supernatural? Well, partly it's critical to appreciate how we conceive of the supernatural. And here I want to take us, see if we can do this. I'm going to take us in two steps. I want to show us the deeper problem in the spiritual realm. And then I want to show you how God most deeply engages with that problem in the supernatural. Does that make sense? Let me take you through the deeper problem in the spiritual realm. And I want to take you on a journey. Come with me to Matthew chapter 16. We'll do a lot of Bible flipping tonight. But you're fresh. You've not had a long day. You've had a nap. You'll be all right. So let me have a look at Matthew chapter 16 with you. Uh, Verse uh, 21 familiar passage a lot of this will be familiar to but i just want to join some dots with you as you go through Um, from that time on jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life peter took him aside and began to rebuke him never lord he said this shall never happen to you jesus turned and said to peter get behind me satan you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter raises the issue. This shall never happen to you. You won't be betrayed. Go to the cross, suffer like that. This will never happen to you. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, what is going on there? This bloke just has a different idea of Jesus and his mission. And Jesus hits him up as if he's Satan. Now, imagine, imagine managing arguments at home like that. Do you know what I mean? I want to be like Jesus. I, I want to go on holidays to the beach. Kathy wants to go on holidays to the mountains. So I just pull the Satan card. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Get behind me. You know, like... Um, what's going on here? Is it just because they disagree and Jesus uses the heaviest club he can to put peter in his well i'm going to operate with an assumption the assumption is this jesus isn't overreacting he isn't just using a technique and so that he says to peter get behind me satan is hugely significant so just clear a bit more ground is jesus suggesting peter at that moment was possessed by satan you know he saw his face morph and his voice turned into Darth Vader or something. I don't know. He's kind of... Did, did Jesus suddenly go, whoa, Satan's just possessed you? And so I get behind me, Satan, because you're there. Is that what's gone on? No, there's nothing like that. There's, what's happening here with Peter is very different from demonic possession, the incidents that you see through the Gospels. What's happening here? Well, its roots go back much earlier in the Gospel, back to the temptation experience that Jesus had. Come back with him in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Flip quickly. Uh, Verse 1, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness uh, and uh, by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. The The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on a high place. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus responds with scripture. Verse 7, it's also written, don't be put the, 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 your Lord the God to the test. 
A day the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the splendor and said, all of this I will give you if you follow, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. What you've got here is Satan offering to Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Now, there's no suggestion that it was wrong for him to offer that. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear that he is the ruler of this world, John chapter 14. Um, he is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In a sense, it's his to offer in some shape or form. And this was a temptation to Jesus in that it was offering Jesus a way into his rule over the world in a way that was different to that which his father was leading him down the path of. The way his father had chosen for him to enter into his kingdom was via the suffering of the cross, via the humiliation of self-sacrifice. Satan was offering him another way, via glory and power, apart from the will of the father. Now you fast forward back to chapter 16 with Peter and Jesus. Jesus is saying there that he, verse 21 is going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests of the Lord, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Jesus is saying he's going to go to the cross to come into his kingdom in submission to the will of his father. And Peter says, no, it will never be that way. Do you see? Where do those words come from? Where do those words ultimately come from? It will never be that way, Jesus. This will surely not happen to you. It comes from a way of thinking that's aligned perfectly with Satan. He was speaking the words of Satan. Peter wanted a triumphalistic ruler. He wanted one who would be seen by everyone as glorious and powerful and prestigious. He wanted a triumphalistic ruler. And in fact, I'd suggest to you, if a human's left to himself and you were on your own to work out how to win a crowd and build a kingdom, you'd do it. By impressing people. You'd do it by outward display. You'd do it in ways that people would find impressive. By being clever, by being beautiful, by being big, by being intimidating. You'd find ways to make people impressed with you, to have them come to you to build your kingdom. You wouldn't do it by having a ruler who meekly submits to their enemies and suffers and dies. Yes, Yes. The instinct thing again. Remember we talked about it last night. Um, you ask anyone, if we wrote the scriptures from our instincts, especially instincts untouched by Christian culture, you'd come up with exactly what Peter was about. And the point of what Jesus was saying to Peter was, Peter, you're operating in Satan's power when you spoke the way you spoke. Peter was speaking from the context and place of one who was raised in a world ruled and shaped by Satan. He was speaking the way the world would speak. The fallen world, the world under the dominion of Satan. A world that's opposed to God and his way of doing things. Do you see, that's why Jesus says, Verse 23, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concern, the things of God, but the things of men. 
You have a worldly way of seeing things. You have a world's way of understanding things. The world's way of understanding things is a satanic way of seeing things. It's the way of triumphalism, prestige, power, impressiveness, success. Now, uh, the, the point is, when you work out this stuff on your own, using your instincts, when you do it according to what seems good to us in our value system, you come up with a way to win a kingdom by power, might, beauty, wit, success. Peter was voicing Satan's values and views. Now, here's my main thesis. Behind the visible impact of Satan, behind the visible impact of Satan, what I'm going to call the unsophisticated impact of Satan in demonic possession, which is largely akin to physical illnesses, behind that is a more sophisticated work of Satan in the world, a more subtle, hidden work of Satan in the world, but a far more powerful work of Satan in the world and a far more serious and concerning work of Satan in the world, a shaping of our values, our tastes, our views, our instincts. Ephesians 2. Come and have a look at Ephesians 2. See if you can flip there quickly. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ways of this world and the, the ruler, the, the, the rule of the kingdom of the air, Satan. See how they're tied? Ways of the world, rule of the kingdom of the air. To be embraced with the ways of men, the concerns of men, the worldly way of thinking things is to be caught up with Satan, is to be bound to Satan, to be involved with Satan. Now, Ephesians 2 draws attention to the real deep work of Satan that's far deeper and more profound than possession. It is his power to have us follow him in our, get this, in our normal, ordinary experiences of life. It's his power to have us shaped by him in the normal and ordinary experiences of life. Possession. Being possessed by a demon, scary? Instinct says it's a scary thing. It says it's really now I'm seeing the power of the supernatural at work in my world and I'm seeing the demonic at work. But I tell you what, it's not a scrap on the horror of being trapped in the ways of the world. It's not a scrap on the horror of living life by your own wisdom. That's truly satanic. But even using that language seems wrong instinctively, doesn't it? To, to call living in the world by my instincts and my wisdom satanic, well, that doesn't say, that's not how Hollywood portrays it. Can't be right. Let me give you two further illustrations from the Bible. Come with me to John 8. John 8. Now, I'm going to spend time proving this point because... To get this point is fundamentally important. And it's a recalibration. So I'm going to spend some time over it. Come with me to John 8. Uh, it's a dispute uh, between uh, the Jews, the Pharisees and Jesus. You come down there in... Um, oh, I mean, uh, uh, 
But verse 34, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave has no permanent place. Uh, um, verse 38, I'm telling you what I've seen in my father's presence and you are doing what you've heard from your father. Abraham's our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, you would know, you would, you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did, did not do such things. You were doing the work of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth and so on and so forth. Um, uh, Satan is a murderer and a liar, the father of lies, verse 44. And in rejecting Jesus, who, verse 45, speaks the truth, they show themselves to be born under Satan, born as an offspring of Satan. Now, there is a profound coherence between the sinful heart and mind and Satan's purposes in these people, such that to, to be, they are born under him and his opposition to God's mind uh, by Satan. Now, our nature chooses and agrees and confirms the opposition that Satan has, so we're aligned with him in our natural state. He rules and we agree with his rule and so we follow him. That is the deep and dark testimony of the Scriptures. There's a true malignant, well, malignant malign figure who is, who is uh, angry, against, furious God, refuses to follow him, uh, and the deep, dark testimony of the Bible is that we've bound ourselves up with him by nature. Um, now, here again, let do some hard work thinking here. Uh, um, what would intuition tell you a, follow, a child of Satan looks like? What would intuition tell you they looks like? Well, I'll tell you what an intuition would tell you a satanic child would look like. They'd dress all in black, wouldn't they? They'd have tats. They'd... they'd that's what I think. They'd have piercings. They'd look like Mikey Lynch. I don't know. They just they'd they'd meet at they'd meet at midnight to have their orgies, and they'd um, drink blood, and they'd kill kittens. I don't know. They just they'd do evil things, wouldn't they? Um, or keep kittens. I don't know whether it's more evil to <laughs> to kill them or to keep them. But anyway, it. The, the people is the people Jesus is talking about as the offspring of Satan. The very children of Satan were none of those things. They were high-minded, proper, religious, and moral, at least on the outside. Now, that's not my conception of a child of Satan, but it's what the Bible says. You know, um, the people Jesus is talking to were the very children of Satan, very different from the way I would conceive them. And part of the power of Satan is to shape our instincts so that we fail to see his work. We fail to look where we ought. We read satanic as, as a small, dark thing. We read satanic in a kind of a narrow, small sense so that we're actually missing most of what Satan's doing. 
because we're shaped by his thinking. Let me give you the second illustration. Come with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Now, Paul, of course, is writing to the church that he's founded. There's, uh, you, you'll appreciate if you know much of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians that there's a trajectory. The trajectory is that new leaders have come in. They're very spiritual leaders. They are people who have these leaders have, have spectacular gifts of tongues, particularly prophecy, it seems, healings. They are, chapter 11, verse 5, called super apostles. So they, they have everything and they're super in it. They're very good at it. But come to verse 13 and look what they're described as. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Therein will be what their actions deserve. Do you see what he's just said? It's a huge thing. What would instinct again tell you that a servant of Satan looks like? Shifty. Sly, a gold cap on their teeth. <laughs> you know that kind of rude and harsh, deceitful person. But what does Paul see them as? Well, he sees them as servants of right, masquerading as they look righteous. And in fact, verse four, they do preach Jesus, and they preach the Spirit. And get this. There's no evidence in the critique of the super apostles that they denied grace alone. No evidence that that's the case. It's not like the Galatian era as far as we can tell. So they preached Jesus. It seems they may have preached grace, grace alone. They may have grace. They talked about the spirit. They talked about the power. Where was their great error? Well, as far as we can work out, their great error is in being in presenting a triumphalistic Jesus. A triumphalistic Jesus. A Jesus who is about prestige, power, triumph and success. A, a triumphalistic Jesus. And they were the great representatives of this triumphalistic Jesus with all their triumph. With all their power and their prestige and their significance. And they were going to build a church that would, the world would have to take notice of. They were presenting a Jesus that Peter wanted. Do you get it? They were presenting a Jesus that Peter wanted. A Jesus that, Jesus, that Paul himself was looking for. Where he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about, we once judged Jesus by merely worldly terms. Because we were looking for that triumphalistic king as well so he took us by surprise but why did they get all of that wrong well because they're servants of satan let me give you uh, three points i've got so much more to deal with let's just give you three points on the way through first one the work of satan is most deeply and profoundly in what we perceive to be ordinary things the work of Satan is most deeply and profoundly in what we perceive to be ordinary things. This is massive to embrace and get hold of. The work of Satan is in ordinary things. Second, those ordinary things 
are the ordinary activities, in this particular instance at least, the ordinary activities of embracing worldly values. Seeing power, prestige, privilege as success and the way to success. That's satanic. It's got the smell of sulphur all over it. Leaders who pursue that are servants of Satan. I'll give you the third one. But this, uh, the second one is that the ordinary things, so Satan works in ordinary, and those ordinary things, secondly, are embracing worldly values. Having in mind the things of man, not the things of God, you see. Ephesians chapter 2, following the ways of this world. And third, this is all part of a larger frame. Satan is at work in leading us to believe lies. Our way is best. Our instinct, our intuition is best. And so he leads us either to dismiss Jesus because he's not the Jesus we want or reshape him into our image. He is, do you remember John 8, the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking his natural language, which was exactly what he did in the garden. Did God really say? The reason he said it was because he had his own interests at heart, not yours. He's the father of lies. Now, this explains something about Jesus' ministry, and it starts to move us into the second part that I want to deal with tonight, how we battle in the spiritual realm. But this explains something about Jesus' ministry. Come with me to Mark chapter 1. I don't think I've ever got over this part of the Bible. Um, Verse 32, from that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many with various diseases, drove out many demons. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and left and went off to a solitary place to pray. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. You know why they're looking for him? I mean, if you could heal every disease and clear out hospitals, as if they ever had hospitals back then, and if you could make leprosy disappear, everyone's after you. But look at the extraordinary thing he does. Jesus replies, verse 38, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Why have I come? To preach. And I'm going to, let, I'm going to stop doing the healing and the demonic to go and preach. Why does he do that? Well, because how do you combat the spiritual power of Satan, who is at work in our world powerfully by spreading lies, except by preaching the truth? John 8, verse 32, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. The truth combats directly the spiritual power of Satan. It's interesting in John 17, we haven't got time to chase it up, but in the context of talking about combating Satan in John 17, Jesus says in his prayer, sanctify them in your truth. Now, I don't know what you do when you hear this. Instinctively, some of you are doing this. Some of you are going... Oh, I knew it. 
He was just going to do a dodge about all the miraculous, spectacular, supernatural stuff and just talk to us about preaching. Now you're laughing because that's what you're thinking. And that shows how worldly you are. It's Satan's ruse to cause us to lose the significance of the truth as a weapon in the spiritual realm. To think that's just ordinary. That's exactly the work of Satan amongst us. It is a weapon against the great and vast power of Satan. Let me push this some more. Do you know the um, sayings of Jesus in the New Testament and the rest of the New Testament about why Jesus came? I don't know if you've ever reflected on. There's a bunch of sayings. You know, I've come. Jesus says, I've come, and gives the reason why he came. And you get the other statements in the New Testament about why Jesus came. Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, one of them was John 18. I've come to testify to the truth. That's why I've come. You see, says Jesus. But you get others like Luke 19, I've come to seek and save the lost. Mark chapter 10, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, John 12, I've come to bring light. Um, and it's possible to kind of lose the thread through all of those different sayings about why he's come. Come to testify to the truth, come to seek and save the lost, come to give my life as a ransom, come to bring light. Why well, he come to lots of different things? No. The thread is pulled together by one of the purpose statements that we don't often think on, 1 John 3, verse 8. We looked at it last night. Why has Jesus come, 1 John 3, verse 8? To destroy the work of Satan. That pulls it all together. Let me try and pull it together for us. And I've got now a big chunk to dig into, but it's just so exciting. Let's do it. Let me look at God's deepest engagement in the battle. And I'm going to run through John's gospel to show you this one. Well, I'll just tell you about John's gospel for time. John, who writes John's gospel and the epistles and revelate, John has a very great awareness of the spiritual realm and the spiritual battle. In his writings, it's very evident that he's aware of this dimension. In his Gospels, Satan is referred to three times as the ruler of this world. John 12, 14 and 16. He's referred to as the ruler of this world. Very aware of the power of Satan in this world. His work or, or potential work is on view numbers of times. Uh, it's somewhat prominent. So that interestingly, Jesus is accused in John 8 and John 10 of being possessed and it's interesting the reason he's accused of being possessed is because he uh, was accused of lying. Satan's a liar. Jesus is accused of lying. You must be possessed by Satan. So Satan figures very prominent. In his letters, he sees the world as being under the influence of Satan. So 1 John 5, the whole world is under the, the sway of Satan. So John, who writes John's gospel, is very aware of the spiritual realm, the demonic and satanic power. But listen to this. He doesn't report any demonic possessions. You get them in the synoptics, but you don't get them in John's gospel. Now, it's not because he's unaware of demonic possessions in the experience of Jesus. He was with him when he was doing them all. Remember? It's not like he's forgotten them either. He, why? There's only one exorcism that he mentions. Let me show you, it's John 12. John 12. 
John 12 is a, is a beautiful passage. It's, um, it, it, it is the passage that talks about the great casting out of Satan from the world. And it's a beautiful passage. The, the Greeks come and they, they trigger for Jesus an awareness that now the hour has come. Do you remember this um, text, verse 20? The, some Greeks arrived, they came to Philip. Uh, Philip tells Andrew, Andrew, Philip, and tells Jesus. Jesus replied, ah, now the hour's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, why do the Greeks coming trigger him to know that the hour has come? It's a whole lot of other stuff that dig into there, but we haven't got time. It's a beautiful passage. Um, but he, he talks about his, the need for his death, verse 24. Very truly, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he's talking about his death. Um, it's, a, it's an hour of his death, the hour that he's troubled about, verse 28. Um, uh, Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. Uh, verse 27, sorry, my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. No, it was with this very reason I came to this hour, the hour of his death and crucifixion and so on. Um, you, you get the voice from heaven which comforts the people and so on. But look at verse 30. Verse 30. Jesus said, this voice was not for your benefit, was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time or the hour for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now is the hour for judgment. Now is the hour for the prince of this world to be cast out, to be Exercise to be driven out of this world and his place in this world. This is the great exorcism, the event where he's lifted up on the cross and then draws all men to himself as the captives flee out from under the great power of Satan. Do you get this? John is writing about the work of Jesus and he sees this fact. The great event, the moment of battle isn't the healings. It's not, the, it's not the casting out of a demon here or there. It's the casting out, the exorcism. When Satan is defeated and his power is taken away and people are drawn to Jesus like fleeing captives and it happens in the death of Jesus. Now, how does that work? How does that work? How does the death of Jesus cast out Satan? Hebrews chapter 2. Come with me to Hebrews 2. Look there at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For it's surely not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. people. How does this work? It's this passage that explains it. By his death, he breaks the power of him who holds the power of death, the devil. 
That's why he must be made like us in every way to make atonement. But how does Satan have the power of death? This is critical to get hold of. What's the great power of Satan? Well, it isn't making us sick. And it isn't making us blind or disabled. The great power he has is that he's a tempter and an accuser. He's a tempter. I mean, he's named the tempter in Matthew 4. By temptation, Satan draws us into sin, into rebellion against the rule of God. Think back to the garden. He tempts us to see that it looks good. Think back to the garden. It will be for best. Don't care what others or God thinks. By temptation, he draws us into sin. And then, before the throne of God, accuses us as the ones who rebelled against God. He is the great accuser, Revelation chapter 12 and Zechariah 3. He accuses us of our rebellion before the holy God and so secures our righteous condemnation by the holy God. Death, eternal death. So we are held by him, has the power of death, in fear of death because it's his having tempted me into sin and then standing and accusing me always so that it's never forgotten and it actually secures the judgment. So I'm held by him in death through the work of the holy God's judgment upon us. Now, how, therefore, is Satan's power destroyed? How are his captives free? By taking away his power to condemn. We have sinned. We were tempted by Satan into it. We weren't made by Satan to do it. We're responsible. He plays on what's in us. More of this tomorrow. I want to talk about the ongoing work of Satan in our experience. But he doesn't make us sin against our will. We choose what he tempts us to do. But now as sinners, he accuses us before the throne. You must condemn him or her because they've sinned. And we are held in death by his work, applying God's holiness. We're captives to death by his accusing work. But his power is taken away when the validity of his accusation is removed. His power is taken away when the validity of his accusation is removed. Do you know, it's interesting in John 14, verse 30. It's interesting that Jesus says Satan has no hold over him. Why does Satan have no hold over Jesus? Nothing to accuse him of. He's, he's free. No sin. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the price is paid. Sin is atoned for. Judgment of God is dealt and vented. There is nothing more to pay. There is no debt outstanding. There is no accusation that can be brought by those who are in Christ Jesus. We are freed. Freed as those who were once captives under the judgment of a holy God by the work of Satan to tempt us and then accuse us and keep us bound to that. But now that there's no ability for him to accuse, there's nothing to actually get us for because we're in Christ by his merits and grace and mercy. We're freed. We're set free. The powerful spiritual battle happened in the life of Jesus to go to the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane was the great battle which Jesus won. 
He was tempted not to go. And it was his ongoing battle to keep walking the path to Jerusalem. To die the way he died. Come and look at Colossians 2. Now I love this stuff. I hope you'll come and have a look at Colossians chapter 2. Have a look at verse. I want to show you a couple of passages here. It's just, it is so magnificent. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 21. Um, no, nah, don't bother looking at that passage. That won't help you at all. <laughs> three? No, I don't think it's three either. Fathers, do not embitter your children. It's a good word, but I don't think it's the one I'm after. 2.14. No, I want to come back to that in a second. Have a look at Colossians 1. You're all guessing now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom, look, these are key verses, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How have we been brought from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves? Well, it's by the work of Jesus who has brought us forgiveness. Forgiveness. I want you to see the connection of sin, death, being under dominion. And so the great event of freeing us from the power of Satan, defeating Satan, was in the act of achieving our forgiveness. The great act of defeating Satan, I'm going to say it ten times to make sure. The great act of defeating Satan was in achieving forgiveness for us. With the act of forgiveness achieved through the cross of Christ, we are free from condemnation, accusation, gone. The act of forgiveness is the defeat of Satan over us. His hold is temptation, sin and accusation. When sin's condemnation is gone, so is his great power. Let me show you again now. Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. So I wanted to, there was another, I don't know why I've missed it. But anyway, have a look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your heart, your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And you see the context here. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public speckle of them, strifling by the cross. Do you see how he moves so seamlessly between forgiveness and the establishment of a new relationship with Jesus, God the Father through accusations being taken away? Do you see how he moves so seamlessly from that, verse 15, into disarming powers and authorities? Do you see the connection? You know, yesterday I talked about the different ways to cast the problem and the solution. You vaguely remember yesterday. Do you remember how I said, how do you think about the problem and how do you think about the solution? The problem, you know, a legal way, a relational way. We talked about the two different ways we typically cast it. The legal way, we're broken laws, God, the judge condemns, and the solution is to have the, the debt paid and so on. Relational way, we've betrayed and hurt and offended God and we've brought reconciliation through the solution. Now, I, I, I want... I think you get this, but they're not alternatives and neither is the one I'm presenting about the, the victory of Christ over Satan. They're not alternatives. The spiritual battle that takes humans captive 
by tempting them to betray God and break his law. That's the problem. That, that we were caught up in a heavenlies battle where Satan is opposed to the rule of God and brings us to be his captives in that. There is the great narrative of the Bible, this spiritual war for us as chief players. What's the solution? We, we're in over our heads. We are captives to Satan. We need him to be disarmed and destroyed. How does that happen? How is the defeat of spiritual forces achieved? By paying for sin. By cancelling the debt. By forgiving us so that Satan has no power. And by the Spirit of God transferring us into union with Christ and relationship with us, with him, so that I might have the Spirit dwelling in me and be given new birth. All of that happens as part of the package. But let me victory over Satan rests on the legal relational one. Got to get this. Victory over Satan rests on the legal transaction that occurred. Substitution, penal substitutionary atonement is at the heart of the Christian gospel and the foundation for the victory over Satan. That's why the legal has so rightly figured prominently amongst us. Because in past generations we got all of this and understood why forgiveness mattered. It's why the preaching of Acts, which I've noticed, I mean, just keep noticing it. How often is the preaching of Acts sheeted back to forgiveness? Jesus is Lord, declared by the resurrection from the dead. And he has made it possible for us to be forgiven from everything we couldn't be forgiven of under the law. It's a declaration repeatedly and constantly about forgiveness is now preached in his name. Why are they so obsessed about forgiveness? It's not just one feature of the Christian life. It's the thing that defeats the spiritual powers that are opposed to us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's why the preaching of Acts is dominated by the preaching of truth. The truth about the need to repent. You are sinners. That's the truth. You need to repent and find forgiveness. That's the truth. But there is one in whom you can find forgiveness. The great victor. Jesus. Do you see how, well, can you see it all working together? Testify to the truth. He comes to testify to the truth. He comes to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes to destroy the work of Satan. They're not three different things. He destroys the work of Satan by providing forgiveness and testifying to the truth of the forgiveness he's established in the gospel of Jesus. The way I gain the benefits of this substitutionary death that brings forgiveness is through the declaration of the truth that I am rescued by a saviour from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom, see the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of lies and hiddenness and deceit, the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of light, because he comes to bring light, that I might now see the truth, that I'm a sinner and there's a saviour. To bring me back under the Lordship of Christ where there is no more condemnation because I'm forgiven. It is the great gospel that is the great power in the realm of the spiritual. And that is no dodge. Aren't we just now back to church as being places of mere words? No. 
Not when the words are words of the gospel. They're not mere words. And if you think they are, I'm deeply concerned about your spiritual life, whether you're really spiritual at all or merely worldly. Do you see? The words of God that speak of the king who has died to forgive us, to remove the power of Satan, to condemn us, to bring us into the light, to bring us into the realm of the spirit. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. (laughs) They're not mere words. Our problem is that we often have the right weapons. We just don't really know what they are. We don't handle them like they need to be handled. We have bought into sub-spiritual, unspiritual thinking that sees the words as just mere words. And I want to find the really spiritual weapon to really get into the exciting supernatural stuff. Well, you poor, deluded person. (laughs) Um, You know, we don't handle these words with the awe and care and gravity we need. We don't handle with the confidence that we are wielding the sword of the spirit in the spiritual realm. I love this beautiful comment by um, a woman in our church, who uh, a fine Christian lady who uh, uh, kind of came through a more Pentecostal, well, grew up in a Pentecostal world, but came to love the scriptures in a deeper way and began to see things a bit with, with considerable clarity, but still brought this love of the spiritual realm. And she said one day to me after preaching, um, and I love hearing this, Kathy needs to say this more to me too. She said one day that, um, she said, I closed my eyes, Andrew. And she said, I could just, I could see you with a flaming sword, just cutting sin and death to pieces. And I thought, yes, that's me. (laughs) Why does my wife talk to me like that? It, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it is, it, she was, it was a beautiful insight that, that, do you see what you're doing? When you, when you gather in front of a group of people and you speak the words of the gospel, we wage, um, have a look at 2 Corinthians 10. I mean, once you get this, you see it everywhere. It's like when you buy a new car, you suddenly now see them everywhere, the same car. But have a look at, well, it's not like that at all, but come look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <laughs> two, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, verse, verse 2, let's start there. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. Do you see all the pieces coming together? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying? I mean, you go back to 2 Corinthians 1. And he preaches the gospel, the death of Jesus, which is foolishness and we, it's weakness and foolishness because they're all looking for the wrong things. You know, um, the, the spiritual battle is, is taking place 
the demonic satanic work is amongst us in the ordinary, in embracing lies, in the condemnation and death that our world is captive to, in living by the ways of this world, by the values of this world. And the great weapon we have is a weapon that can seem so ordinary as well. It did to the Corinthians. Mere words. We want a super apostle who has more spectacular things. All you've got is that very ordinary, weak message that you keep speaking. And he says, we lead captives. We lead captives in train by this powerful gospel. Let me show you the picture again. We're going to finish. Let me see if I can take you through... Natural, supernatural. Look at the next one. Natural. The line between the natural and the supernatural is dotted. And look how I've... I want to suggest you the way to properly conceive it is that there is a, there is a sense in which there's a heavenly realm. There is something above the natural. But the supernatural isn't there and natural's down. It's supernatural through all of our ordinary experiences. Do you see? There's not this simple divide that you need to get out of the natural into the supernatural. No, no, you're in it all the time. And that is the great deceit of Satan that makes you think you're not. But as you drift into worldly values, doing things by the ways of the world, you are operating in a supernatural deceit. And the more you come into the word of God and wield the word of God prayerfully, you're actually operating in the supernatural with great, great power. But more tomorrow. How about I pray and see if there's any questions? Or you all just want to go to bed? How about I pray? Father, we, um, we do thank you for the incredible blessing of the word of truth that opens our eyes, brings us into the light to see what we have not seen. And we pray, please, tonight that you would help us appreciate um, the deepest, most frightening work of Satan amongst us, that we might be not fooled, that we might not be foolish. Um, but, Father, we pray too that you would help us appreciate the incredible weapon that you have given us in your word, the word of truth, that you might help us wield it with great confidence and assurance that we are engaged in an incredible battle, but on the side of a God who, by his word, will free captives, and will uh, break chains and bring people from darkness to light and bring people fleeing out from under the power of Satan into the glorious freedom of sons and daughters of God. Please help us appreciate the glory of what we do and what we have. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.